Welcome to Conversations on Public Health, a regular program from the Harvard School of Public Health that explores current issues in the field. Today we're speaking with Michelle Mello, Professor of Law and Public Health. Mello is the author of an article in the May 7, 2009 issue of the New England Journal of Medicine that examines the legal issues and policy lessons arising from New York City's war on fat. Explain the steps New York City has taken in its war on fat. Well, the Board of Health, working with the Office of the Mayor, came up with a three-pronged plan to try to get at obesity and chronic disease in New York. In December 2006, the Board of Health imposed a two-stage phase-out of trans fatty acids, usually called trans fats, in all the city's food service establishments. The regulation was enforceable by fines, and it was staged to give restaurants a chance uh, to get it out of both prepared foods and prepackaged foods. The city imposed this because research at the Harvard School of Public Health and elsewhere have linked trans fats to coronary heart disease. The second thing the city did was in January 2006, the Board of Health started requiring most clinical laboratories that report electronically to the city health department to report patients' hemoglobin A1C results. Hemoglobin A1C is a blood sugar indication of how well a person's diabetes is controlled. Uh, in a pilot program, the City Health Department is going to begin sending patients who have elevated levels of hemoglobin A1C a letter, informing them of the test results and suggesting some lifestyle changes. Uh, it's also going to begin contacting their physicians with periodic reports of their patients summarized uh, according to how high their level of A1C is, giving them alerts about specific patients who have high levels of blood sugar, and issuing reminders to them about best practice recommendations for caring for diabetic patients. The third thing the city did was beginning in October 2007, it required chain restaurants in the city that had 15 or more outlets to post calorie information on menus, menu boards, and display tags that sit next to food items. Uh, this was a revision of an earlier rule from 2006, which applied to a slightly different set of restaurants. The later rule applied to about 10% of all New York restaurants, um, and those were the large chains. You note in the paper that many other local governments and states have adopted or considered adopting these same regulations, and that they have attracted criticism from some quarters. Why have these initiatives attracted so much attention? Well, I think they've attracted attention in the public health community and among lawmakers in other states because they're really innovative uses of traditional public health law powers to combat a, a threat that is incre increasingly recognized as dominant today, which is a threat posed by chronic disease. So public health departments have long used things like disease surveillance and safety regulations to try to get at infectious disease spread, but there's been less activity around controlling chronic disease like heart disease and obesity-related disorders. So it's new and it's interesting in terms of the uses of public health law. In particular, the hemoglobin A1C registry is the first time that any U.S. government unit has mandated personalized surveillance um, that's going to be used to thwart a chronic, non-infectious disease that has nothing to do with environmental contaminants. The reasons that the regulations have come under criticism from some quarters are both philosophical and legal. The philosophical objection has to do with paternalism, the notion that the public health department here is intervening in lifestyle choices around food consumption and management of diabetes. 
that don't have direct effects on other people. So unlike trying to control the spread of H1N1 or HIV, these interventions are aimed at chronic disease, at obesity, about things that uh, affect other people only insofar as they involve costs for the city that taxpayers have to bear and demands on the healthcare system that we all share. The legal reason why they came under criticism was that some alleged that the diabetes surveillance program might implicate patients' privacy, but most of the legal challenge focused on the menu labeling regulations and alleged that not only did this fly in the face of the existing federal scheme for regulating food labeling, but it also impermissibly impinged on restaurateurs' freedom of speech. Can you say a little bit more about some of the legal issues that critics of the regulations have raised? The first legal challenge was a very technical one that had to do with whether an existing federal regulatory scheme in the Nutrition Labeling and Education Act of 1990 trumped what the city was trying to do here. And in a nutshell, the court concluded that this was one area that the federal scheme had left open for local governments to experiment with. The more interesting legal claim was the First Amendment claim. The New York State Restaurant Association alleged that what the city was trying to do in forcing the disclosure of calories on menu labels was to make restaurant proprietors express a message with which they disagreed, which is that consumers should only consider calorie information when they're making their food choices. But the court disagreed. It viewed this as just a factual and uncontroversial disclosure, and it therefore applied a very light standard of review and held for the city because it found that this regulation was reasonably likely to advance the city's interests in promoting public health, and in particular, in promoting the, the free flow of information. You note that New York City used science to defend its envelope-pushing initiatives. Could you explain? Sure. Well, the city has to be credited for having done a pretty thorough investigation before implementing these regulations of the need for them and their likely effectiveness. And that's important not just from a political perspective, but also from a legal perspective. In particular, if you think you're going to be slapped with a First Amendment lawsuit, which was not unforeseeable given the nature of this menu labeling rule, you want to make sure that you've begun to build a case that what you're doing is reasonably likely to be effective in advancing your objective as a public health department. So what did the city do? Well, one thing it did um, with respect to the trans fat ban was assemble data showing that heart disease was the leading cause of death in New York City. So it's a problem of public health significance. And moreover, it had suggestive evidence that up to 23% of coronary heart disease events could be avoided by replacing trans fats with other fats. So there was a very strong science base on which it was able to draw the Institute of Medicine. The FDA had already opined on this issue and it was able to make a very strong case that this regulation was feasible and effective. For the menu labeling regulation, the city reviewed the scientific literature that indicated consumers often make mistakes when they try to estimate the amount of calories in restaurant food, and they tend to, as a result, overeat in restaurants. They also assembled information about how difficult it actually was to access nutritional information in restaurants and how few consumers currently did so, even though some restaurants had begun making it available in various places on a voluntary basis. The city was also able to draw on recommendations from the Institute of Medicine and the Food and Drug Administration, both of which supported providing more nutritional information at the point of purchase. Finally, in its proposed rulemaking for this regulation, the city really laid out a very clear causal chain linking what it was trying to do and the health outcome it was trying to affect. It had evidence that restaurant patrons underestimate their caloric intake. It had evidence that excessive caloric intake 
in restaurants was linked to weight gain, and it had evidence that this overall energy imbalance between caloric intake and caloric expenditures was contributing to the nation's obesity epidemic. So it could make a pretty good case that this intervention had what public health folks might call high face validity. It seemed likely to work based on what we knew about the science. One area, though, where there was not a great deal of science was about the specific effects of menu labels, nutritional information at the point of purchase, on food purchasing decisions. There were a few studies, but because New York was innovative in proposing that this be mandatory in restaurants, there wasn't the sort of ironclad evidence that one would ideally like to have. But the courts don't require that kind of ironclad evidence, just reasonable evidence of effectiveness. It's notable that now, private foundations have funded several studies that are going to look very scientifically and in a rigorous way at the specific effects of the New York menu labeling regulation on food purchases and obesity in the state. What lessons can localities and states that are considering similar regulations draw upon from New York City's experience? Well, I think there are several things. Uh, one is the importance of building consensus in the public in favor of a proposed rule, particularly when it is a novel use of your public health powers. Now, in New York City's case, these rules were passed by an administrative rulemaking process, which actually gave the public health officials a great deal of freedom that they wouldn't have had if they were trying to do this by passing legislation, as many other states are doing. In an administrative rulemaking procedure, the officials are obligated to have a notice and comment period where they post a proposed rule, invite public comments, and then consider them in revising the rule. But they don't have to build coalitions in favor of the rule in the same way that they'd have to to get a law passed. I think one overall take-home message, though, is if you are going to try to do these things through legislation, you really need to be sensitive to the need to get key stakeholders to understand the reasons and the likely effectiveness of the regulation and build a coalition to support the rule before it's introduced. Another lesson, I think, is that it can be useful to try voluntary approaches before imposing mandatory regulations like this. In 2005, New York City actually tried to implement a trans fat ban on a voluntary basis. They issued a lot of information to restaurants, encouraging them to phase out trans fats voluntarily, and they actually trained over 7,000 people uh, about how to do it. But a year later, they found that there was no difference in the amount of trans fats being used in restaurants. I think this built a very strong case for why it needed to be done on a mandatory basis and helped undercut potential opposition. Finally, more broadly, I think New York's experience really demonstrate that there is a lot that local governments can do to go after important public health threats with their existing powers. That there are creative and novel uses of traditional public health powers that can be deployed in the area of chronic disease. And I expect we'll see a lot more activity along these lines in the coming years. This has been a Harvard School of Public Health production. Please visit us on the web at www.hsph.harvard.edu.